0: And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Today we're going to be in uh, Acts uh, 11 today in week 9 of our series, Outsiders. And I think as we get started, as we're going to see, Peter probably thinks that he's in an episode of I Love Lucy. And I say that because Peter has some and to-do. Okay, that's where this kind of starts. Uh, in Acts chapter 11. So last week we looked at Peter's vision that he had on a rooftop of these unclean animals that God commands him to kill and eat, which according to his past is against the law. And yet God shows him through this vision that he is preparing a way for even outsiders to come in through a relationship with God through Jesus so that's Peter's vision that he has and we saw that Cornelius this Roman centurion his family they're saved they're baptized in the Holy Spirit they're baptized in water and this starts kind of a new thing and it's a big moment for Peter it's a big shift for him but he sees the value and the importance and the mission of what God is doing but the church back in Judea they have some questions for Peter, about what they've heard. And so we're going to look at Peter really retelling his story. We're not going to read most of the chapter because it's he's retelling what we looked at the last few weeks. Um, so if you want this week to kind of get a, a summary of that, uh, that's great. But we're going to focus really on the end of his retelling of the story of Cornelius in Acts 11. And so we're going to look at the very end here. So let's look at Acts 11 uh, verses 15 through 17. We're going to focus on the very end, the last sentence of this portion today but let's look at this in context so Peter says as I began to speak Peter continued the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning then I thought of the Lord's words when he said John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ who was I to stand in God's way That's what we're going to talk about today, is standing in God's way. Obviously, if you're a follower of Jesus, you do not want to do that. Clearly, obviously, we don't want to do that. However, it is much easier to stand in God's way of what he wants to do than what we might realize, even though we don't intend to do that. So we're going to look at this question today and answer it partially, and then I'll tell you something we're going to do different this week uh, to answer the rest of it. Here's the question we're going to look at today. What attitudes cause us to stand in God's way? What attitudes can cause even followers of Jesus, even devoted Christians, even people that love God want to serve him, what attitudes can cause us to stand in God's way? There are three main attitudes that that we'll pull out from Acts 11. However, we're just gonna look at one of them today. So here's what we're gonna do that's a little bit different. So we're gonna look at the first one today, and then the last two, are going to. number one's gonna take up the entire time, okay? But then the last two take up maybe 10, 12 minutes or so, and so what I'm gonna do is do a bonus video midweek and do the other two separately. Uh, and so, so we're not here literally for like another hour. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save us that, uh, in, you know, save us that torture and uh, just go through the first one today and then I'll do a bonus video midweek with the last two to kind of finish up. But we're going to focus on the first main attitude that can cause us to stand in God's way. And we're, we see it here in Acts 11, it's pride. Pride is the main attitude or the first one that can cause us to stand in God's way. And we know that God's not a fan of pride. Clearly, James, the brother of Jesus, writes this in James 4, verse 6. He gives gives grace generously as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, I mean, very clear here. God opposes. He is against those who. Who are proud and in some ways the problem of pride is very obvious some things we'll talk about here are obvious huge red flags huge things that we see are not good however in some ways pride can be sneaky and subtle that's why even devoted followers of jesus can fall into this trap that's a barrier to what god wants to do if we're not careful so sometimes it's obvious sometimes it's not but it's always a barrier that gets in god's way of what he wants to do We'll look at two aspects, two main aspects of pride, what we're going to cover today. And the first one is really pride in relation to God and how we view God. We can become proud even in how we view God. It seems weird, but it it happens. And we'll look at a few examples today in the Old Testament of that. Now, on, on some level, pride is what keeps people disconnected from God in the first place. That's mainly the main thing. They may not think of it that way, but that is the main attitude that keeps people from connecting with God. They would say, well, I don't really need God in my life. I'm fine on my own. Well, that's pride. Or I'm fine by myself, and I've lived this way for so long, and life's been okay. That's an attitude of pride. I don't need God. I can do life without him. But even people who acknowledge God and want to live for him can be tempted to become self-sufficient in their life or self-reliant in their life. Even people of faith can be tempted to become too self-sufficient or self-reliant. Even without realizing it, we're saying the same thing. I can do this on my own. I don't need God for this thing. I don't really need to ask his, his will for this decision because I know what I want to do. That's an attitude of pride that can get in God's way. We'll see two Old Testament examples here to kind of illustrate this first point of pride, even in relation to God, and see how it's obvious when we read about somebody else doing it. <laughs> it's less obvious when I'm the one doing it in my own life, but hopefully this will help us to see maybe if we fall short in this area. Uh, the, and they're fo- both famous examples in the Old Testament. The first one is Samson who was a judge in the Old Testament. He's in the book of Judges. His life is really in four chapters, but there's so much to learn from him, mainly in a bad way. He's a cautionary tale of how pride can get in God's way. So Samson had everything set up for him to succeed. He should be one of the great heroes of the faith, and yet he's the cautionary tale of pride of the faith an angel announces his birth miraculously to his parents that doesn't happen very often only a few special people get that privilege the angel even in announcing his birth tells his parents what his mission is so he's been commissioned by God before he was even born to destroy the Philistine people who'd been oppressing Israel for years and years he's going to be the one to end that that's his mission by God from an angel delivered to his parents Through his life, he lives under a covenant with God, an agreement with God. That's pretty special. He's given, obviously, great strength. That's what we know Samson for is his strength. But it comes, we think of, from his hair, and it does, but it's connected to the covenant that he had with God, the relationship he had with God. As long as he didn't let pride get in the way and let God do what he wanted in him and through him, he would have this really superhuman strength. And so he, but more important than that was this supernatural covenant and anointing that Samson had on his life. But despite his great strength, it was undone by his greatest weakness, which was pride. Pride kept Samson from accomplishing God's amazing plan for his life. And we probably know the culmination of the story, but if you read, I'd encourage you this week, it's Judges, I think, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. So maybe it's five chapters. Um, or no, it's through 16, so 13 through 16. Read the story of Samson this week. You're gonna see a theme. It's not just one thing he did one time. It's a theme, it's a pattern, it's who he was. So let me just give you a quick synopsis of this consistent problem in his life. Samson was impulsive in his decisions. He was demanding of others. He was overconfident in himself. He was short-tempered. He was vengeful. He was so full of himself that even in Judges 15, he writes a song about himself. All right, so I don't know, that's, you know, that's pretty full of himself there. And he lacks self-awareness. He didn't see any of this as a problem. He didn't see any of these behaviors as problematic or, mm, that's weird. And then, obviously, we enter Delilah into the story. She's a woman who's hired by the Philistines, whom Samson's supposed to destroy, and they're trying to find the secret of his strength, and so they hire her, and she lures him in in this relationship. Whether or not it was a real relationship or not, she's using him, and she tries to just get the secret from him. What's the secret to your great strength? And, of course, a few times he says, oh, it's if you tie me up with this and whatever, so she ties him up. And has these guys coming after him, and he breaks the, you know, the, the things loose and a few other things he tricks her. And finally, he gives in and tells his secret that it's my hair. I have this covenant with God. I have this long hair. It gives me super strength, and, and that's, that's the secret. And so while he's asleep, she cuts his hair, shaves his head, gets a little you know, get a little trim. And uh, so here's what happens after that. It's very famous. Well, let's look at it. Judges 16, 20. Then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. When he woke up, he thought, I will do as before and shake myself free. But he didn't realize the Lord had left him. Every time I read that, I think that is maybe one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. He didn't realize the Lord had left him. Pride can be, as we said a minute ago, it can be, I can do this without God, I'm fine on my own. Samson's pride was so deep, it was actually the reversal of that. His pride was so deep, he was so self-assured. His attitude was not only that I can do this without God, but God can't do this without me. He had this mindset that God needs me to accomplish his plan. And what he failed to realize is, no, God chose to work through you. He could have chosen anybody else, but he chose you. He could have chosen nobody and done it himself, but he chose you. Samson forgot this, and his pride got in God's way. But then he hits rock bottom. And luckily, for one more moment at the end of his life, he comes to his senses, he relies upon God, the pride gets out of the way, and God uses him, but it's still kind of a sad ending here. So after he's captured, he's a prisoner of the Philistines. Think about that. The, the people group that you've been told since before you were born by an angel you're going to destroy, you're now their prisoner. They've shaved his head. They've gouged his eyes out. And so his head being shaved was the symbol of power is now gone. He's not recognizable as the great man he once was. They gouged his eyes out, which is an interesting thing. This is a different sermon altogether, but think about this. Samson lost his vision. Then he lost his sight. See that? He lost his vision. He got off track. He, his pride got in God's way, and then he lost his physical sight he's paraded around like a circus animal. You know, he's on display. He's chained up. He's weak. He's a nobody now. Uh, he, they're, being, they're showing him off as their prized possession. But then he's there between this pagan temple, between these two pillars. And let's look at the end of Samson's life here, Judges 16, 28. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me again. O God, please strengthen me just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. Then Samson put his hands on the two center pillars that held up the temple. Pushing against them with both hands, he prayed, Let me die with the Philistines. And the temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and all the people. So he killed more people when he died than he had during his entire lifetime. So yes, Samson did reverse course here at the end. And yes, God used him one more time, but pride kept him from fulfilling the full mission accomplishing the full plan God had for him because again he killed more people in his death than in his entire life so I mean you talk about a waste that's a waste you talk about a missed opportunity that's a missed opportunity you talk about unrealized potential in someone that sums it up he had his whole life to do this and in one moment at his death he accomplishes more than in his whole life which might be the second saddest (laughs) statement in this entire story Samson's pride got in God's way and if we find that maybe we're too self-reliant sometimes, we're too self-sufficient sometimes, we're too self-assured or self-absorbed, don't wait until you're at rock bottom. Like in the moment that you realize that or you're convicted of that, you can right then turn to God and say, okay, strip me of my pride. I need you more than I thought. I need you more than I anticipated. And so I'm running back to you. It doesn't have to be at the end of your life when you've wasted years and years. You can do it right now. You can do it today. So say no to pride and yes to God like Samson, but don't wait. The second example from the Old Testament of pride getting in God's way is King Saul, the first king in the nation of Israel. And as you look at King Saul's reign, it's kind of, there's a few details, a few things there that we see similar tendencies as Samson. Saul was very rash in his decisions at times. He went rogue on decisions like he was supposed to do this. It's clear. It's obvious he's supposed to do this thing. God's told him this, and he does something different anyway. He doesn't listen to godly authority, and it gets him in trouble. It's already got him there, but now we get to this moment where they're about to face the Amalekites. So this is later on after Samson, but now there's a new people group, the Amalekites, who have oppressed Israel. And so God promises victory to Saul as the leader of the army and the Israelite army here but he gives them a condition to victory. He says, after you win the victory, destroy everything. Don't keep any spoils of war, which is normal. Don't, like, keep any prisoners of war, which is normal. Don't keep people as your slaves, which would have been normal. He said, just destroy everything. We're just done here, but so Israel gets the victory that God promised them, but here's the aftermath. It's a little, it's about 10 verses, but let's look at this. Uh, After the victory, Saul finds himself in a In a pickle here, and it's of his own making. This is 1 Samuel 15. We're going to start at verse number 12. So early the next morning, that's after the victory, Samuel, who's the prophet of Israel, went to find Saul. Someone told him Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Now let's stop there for a second. It's already a problem. It's already an issue here, right off the bat. Where's Saul? Well, he's building a monument to himself. Not a great place to start. Then he went on to Gilgal. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. Then what is all the bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle I hear, Samuel demanded. It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted. But they're going to sacrifice him to the Lord your God. We've destroyed everything else. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you, Saul asked. And Samuel told him, Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you as king of Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought in the best sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Saul's prides already led to severe disobedience. The the, the objective was clear. The mission was clear. The conditions were clear. And he decided to do what he wanted anyway. And now, when confronted with that fact, he's so full of pride, he will not confess and repent what is obviously wrong. He says, I carried out the Lord's command. I I did obey what God said. But as we've seen, this entire conversation from Saul's side is justification. It's backtracking. It's excuse-making. It's finger-pointing. It's blaming others. He says, I carried out the command, but the army saved the animals. That's on them. Immediately, pointing the finger. I did obey. I kept the king alive, but I I, I got rid of everything else, just this one thing that I wanted to do. And so Saul's pride got him in a mess, and his pride is now digging the hole even deeper. It's not helping him. Saul's attitude. So Samson, you know, was God can't do this without me, but Saul was maybe a little more subtle, but still just as dangerous, because Saul's attitude was, I'll obey God, but on my terms. And maybe we've been guilty of that in our lives. I'll live for God, but not really at 100%. I'll submit to God, but not in this area. This is still mine. I'm in control of this. I'll serve God unless it gets too difficult, and I'm going to tap out. I'll be faithful unless something goes wrong, and then I'm going to just abort mission. I'll obey, but there's a limit. That's what Saul does here. I'll obey, but there's a limit. To how much I will. This attitude of pride stands in God's way because what it says is I don't want to do it God's way, and I'm sorry, but that's the only option. If we're standing in God's way, that there's there's no plan B. There's no other option. There's no alternative. It's either God's way or no way. And so if we don't want it His way, then we find ourselves in a lot of trouble here, and that's what with Saul. Uh, found himself here. There's one observation. I, here's what I love about the Bible. You know, the, it's in First Timothy. It says the, the Bible is alive, right? It speaks to us. And so I remember uh, this passage here was one of the first sermons I ever preached in, when I was in high school. I did a, a short sermon uh, at a fine arts competition, and I used this scripture. But there's something I never noticed until this week about this. Verse 17 is what I noticed. What I noticed is that it seems Saul's pride stems from insecurity. It's a weird thing to think, but just hang with me for a second. Because in verse 17, Samuel, when he confronts Saul, he says, Although you think little of yourself, God's anointed you as king. You're the king. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. There are 12 tribes in Israel. Benjamin is the smallest tribe. Insignificant. It's where he's from. He even says when God chooses him as king, I'm from the lowest family of the smallest tribe. So Saul, even as number one, as king, he still got so much insecurity. Now you would think, well, if he saw God's sovereignty and power and anointing to pull him up from obscurity to be the king, the first king of the nation that God chose from all the other nations, that would just make him rely totally on God. But in fact, his insecurity ran so deep, it was the opposite for him. Because his mindset became, I've got to do everything not to lose this. I know what it's like to be at the bottom. I can't go back there. But I can't really trust God to keep me here, so i got to hold on to this. And i got to do things my way. i got to make sure that I'm in control. i got to make sure that everything's how I want it, how I need it, what works best for me. So his grip tightened on this position and this power. His pride overtook him. He's got to maintain control. It's got to be on his terms. And it didn't, it didn't promise him what he thought. Did it? It, it, it didn't fulfill what the, what the promise was in his head. If I can maintain control, I'll be happy. If I can keep this power and status, I'll be okay. Unfortunately, we saw an example of this just this last week in the headlines. So Matthew Perry, the actor from the TV show Friends, this is him in a nutshell. There's an uh, interview that has been going all over the Internet this week where he prayed early and young when he was a young man, struggling actor. He says he prayed to God for the first time in his life, apparently, God, please make me famous. That was his prayer. And he said three weeks later, he got the job on the show Friends. Money, fame, fortune, yet the next 25 years of his life, he struggles with addiction. He spends $10 million on, on rehab. It's a nightmare scenario for him. And then, this week, he passes away at 54, way ahead of when he probably should have because of the kind of life he had lived. Now, again, it was accidental. Maybe we don't know yet, but we, there are effects. If you saw him the last couple of years, even interviewing for his book he wrote, he's just not the same person. His lifestyle that he thought would bring him happiness through his own pride did not. His prayer being answered to be famous by God did not promise what, what he thought, didn't deliver on that promise. And Saul has the same thing here. His pride stood in the way, and for Saul, it ended up costing him. Here is what Samuel, the prophet, Saul tries to you know, say, oh, it's not that bad, and I just did this one thing, and I obeyed God for the most part. But on my terms, here's what Samuel says in response. Chapter 15, verse 22, Samuel replied, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as as sinful as witchcraft, and stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Pride got in God's way in Saul's life. It did not end well. And unfortunately, he didn't have, you know, a reversal moment like Samson did. Unfortunately for Saul, this moment started a downward spiral into literal insanity. He goes out of his mind the next 20 or so years of his life. He is literally going insane. That's why young shepherd boy David ends up playing his harp for him because it soothed his, cra- his crazed mind. He's tormented mentally, and it started here in this moment where he was fully and finally rejected from being king. Pride stood in God's way. Here's what God wants us to understand. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God says through Isaiah, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God reminds us, you can never figure me out. You, could, you should always try to seek me and learn more about me, but you're never going to fully figure me out. You, you can't. Uh, you're not privy to every detail of my plan. Your, your motives maybe aren't always pure, but mine are. You can't control everything, but I can. So today God is saying, stop trying to live that way. Stop trying to maintain control that you don't even really have. It's a figment of your imagination. Stop. Stop living this prideful way and lay down your pride and submit to and follow me. Don't let pride get in God's way. The church here is in at this moment, when Peter's talking to them, they're at this crossroads here. Are we going to let our way get in God's way? Are we going to say, no, you can't can't do it that way. It's got to be on my terms. The church is at this crossroads here, and so we have to be careful that we don't follow in the path of these men. And we'll see how it ends here in Acts 11. But then the second aspect of pride we see at the beginning of Acts 11. So this is at the end we see kind of working its way through here, but it starts at the beginning of Acts 11, and it's why Peter is explaining himself here. So here's the second aspect of pride. Acts 11 verse 1, the very top of the chapter. Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the apostles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. So as we already talked about earlier, we can have pride in our view of God, yes, that's not good, but as we see here, we can also display pride in a spirit of criticism toward others. That's what we see here at the beginning of Acts chapter 11. And as we see at the beginning of Acts 11, many many times our criticism of others comes from assumptions. Because what happens here is the news of what Peter had said and done got back to them before Peter did. So just imagine, Peter's on his way back to the church. I'm sure he's so excited. He just can't wait to tell them what God's up to. You know, I was really unsure about this, and I wasn't. I had no idea, and God showed me this vision three times, and he revealed this brand-new revelation to me that's going to revolutionize our movement. It's going to change everything. But before he can get to them to give them this great news, he's on trial with these people. Immediately, well, we've heard this, and we've been told this, and the reports come in and say that you did this, and you said, and he's like, whoa, 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 I haven't even said or done anything yet. Calm down. It came from assumptions. He's on trial. He's being criticized. Even his integrity is called into question. This group's pride is coming through in criticism, which changes the conversation from an exciting report to now an emotional defense. Once again, this is a crucial, tense moment in the life of the early church that could affect the future direction of the church. The question is, will the church allow pride and criticism to stand in God's way? Maybe you can relate to where Peter finds himself here in Acts 11 at times. Maybe you've had people assume your motive and just attack you with no, no reasoning, no logic, just I think you're doing this for the wrong reason, so I'm just going to bash you for it. Maybe you've been there. That's where Peter is. Maybe people have heard secondhand or thirdhand about something about you, and they confront you about it without the real details involved. That's where Peter finds himself. Maybe someone that hardly knows any details about your life loves to lecture you about your life. Don't you love that? People just, you know, do that to you. It's great. Maybe someone hasn't even taken the time to know you at all, and yet they want to criticize they want to point fingers. They want to put you down. They want to measure you against themselves and you never measure up. And they don't, You don't even know who I am. You, we, haven't talked, we haven't had 10 minutes together and yet I'm already being attacked here. Maybe you've found yourself where Peter is or maybe you found yourself where the church here at the beginning of Acts 11 is. Maybe you've been on the other end of that. Unnecessary criticism of others. Spoken about something without all the facts being known. This can keep God from working in us. And through us. Luckily, Jesus gives us an easy alternative to this critical spirit that comes from pride that can stand in God's way. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verses 3 and 4 Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, Let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log? in your own eye. I love the imagery that Jesus gives us here. A critical spirit is like tweezing everybody else, but I need a chainsaw. You see that? Like, I have so, me working on me is a full-time job. I don't have to criticize everybody else and what they're doing. They don't do it like me, and I don't agree with their methods, and I've heard this third hand, but I'm going to crush them for, it's like, I got enough for me. I don't have to worry about that. Now, there is something to helping others if you know them, if you have access to them and, and they've given you access to their lives and you can speak truth to them and you can point out things in them. Like if there's that mutual understanding and relationship, then yes, we want that accountability and that partnership in our lives. We want to bear one another's burdens. We want to speak the truth in love, but not in a critical spirit. Because what Jesus shows us here is that if we are hypercritical, we're just really hypocritical. So Matthew 7 is if we're hypercritical we are hypocritical so again truth and accountability are good but it's all in context so here's some things to to think about am I really speaking the truth in love to a trusted friend who has given me access into their life that we're doing life together or am I just crushing someone unnecessarily here's some things to consider do I know the vital information needed to comment on that person's situation Do I know the details, or am I assuming things or filling in blanks on my own? Did I hear something about this from this person, or is it from a person who heard, from a person who heard, from a person who heard? Do I know them well enough to speak harsh truth to them, if necessary, at times, or am I imposing? Is this really constructive criticism, or am I accusing or judging or tearing them down needlessly? Is this a mutual conversation, or is it an ambush? I'm just waiting for a vulnerable moment to pounce. Is this a real problem that I'm confronting, like a sin problem, a moral problem, a life altering negative problem? Or is it just a preference that I don't like? Or a thing that we just agree, can't, I can't agree to disagree on? Those are some things to consider. We don't want to be hypercritical because then we're hypocritical. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 7. And how we treat one another matters. There are ripple effects from those interactions. A prideful, critical spirit can spread quickly in a relationship. Uh, Even in a church, this can happen, and it can cause deep, long-term damage. So we must be careful. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 4 about this topic and how we speak with one another uh, in our critical nature if we have pride. So Ephesians 4, verse 1, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you, To lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Then skip down to verse 29 there at the end of Ephesians 4. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful, so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Let me give some summary statements to what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4, a comparison between a prideful, critical spirit and what Paul is urging us to do as believers in Jesus in Ephesians 4. A prideful, critical spirit is short with people, but Paul says, be patient with one another. A prideful, critical spirit never lets differences or disagreements go. But Paul says, make allowances for each other. We won't always see things the same way. That's okay. We sometimes have differences in how we live life, and if it's not a sin issue, that's okay. We might communicate differently or process differently. That's okay. We have to make those allowances for one another. A prideful, critical spirit is judgmental. But Paul says what we do should come from love. A prideful, critical spirit is divisive. But Paul says make every effort to stay united in peace. A prideful, critical spirit is foul and abusive. Again, verse 29, he says don't use foul or abusive language. It doesn't just mean don't curse. That's not what that's saying. It's deeper than that. It's it's really way more important than that. It's not just surface level, it's like what the intention of your words, are they abusive toward people? Are you pushing them down? Are you putting your throat on their neck? What, what's the goal? So a prideful, critical spirit is foul and abusive, and it involves gossip, hearsay, innuendo, and lies. But Paul wants our words and actions to be good, helpful, and encouraging, he says in Ephesians 4. The last thing I'll say about this verse, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here in just a moment. In verse 1. He says, here's what he says. Uh, I'll read verse one again. Uh, He says, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling for you've been called by God. So to compare these two aspects, a prideful, critical spirit is living below your calling as a follower of Jesus. It is below what God has planned for you. It's getting in God's way. But Paul reminds us we're called by God. It's not a small thing, it's not just a fringe thing, it is everything. And so if we are full of pride and criticism toward others, unnecessarily we're living below our calling. As individual Christ followers, what will we choose? Even as a church family, what will we choose? Jesus says that to his disciples in the book of John, he says, the way that outsiders will know that you're following me is your love for one another. Catch that. Not just your love in general, although that's important. Not your love for God, although that's key. It's foundational. Not your love for them, outside the outsider. No, he says, the outsiders will know you follow me by how you love each other in the faith. That's a big deal. And then later on in the Gospels, Jesus says, a house divided against itself can't stand. So the pride gets in the way, not just of your life, but the ripple effects in your relationships, in church life, in community life. Pride stands in God's way. It keeps God's plan from unfolding, from relationships growing, from churches thriving. And so may we be careful not to have this attitude of pride, even though it might be subtle at times. It can be very, very deadly. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he he makes this statement. Again, the the genius but simplicity of C.S. Lewis never disappoints. He says this, I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. See, what what he's saying here is the more pride we have in our hearts, the less we praise. But the more we praise, the less pride we're going to have. It works both ways. Because pride focuses on me, and praise focuses on God. So the more I'm focused on him, the less I'm focused on me. Pride's going to decrease automatically. That critical spirit's going to decrease automatically. I'm not going to be looking at everybody else and sizing them up and judging them and take, put, putting them down, right? I'm going to focus on God and then me second and then others in more of a positive way. So think about these, this as we close. Am I so focused on my way that I question God and criticize others? Am I so self-absorbed that God's blessings aren't enough and everyone else becomes undesirable? Am I so self-assured that I'm no longer needing God's direction, but yet I know best for everyone else in their life? Don't let pride stand in God's way. In your life, let God be God. It's his way, not mine. It's his will, not mine. It's his direction, not mine. It's his preferences, not mine. And then when it comes to others, avoid that critical spirit. Let God be God for them. Again, if you have access to their life and there is something spiritually off, then yes, in, in love, Confront that person that you've been given access to their life. Otherwise, let's just let God be God in their life. He might be taking them in a direction that doesn't seem, it seems weird. It seems different. That's what the church is doing here in Acts 11. Peter, we've heard some things that are strange. We've never done it this way before. God wouldn't do it that way. Peter's like, I'm telling you, He is doing it that way. You've got to get on board or get left behind because that's what God's doing. And in the end, they get on board. The very last verse uh, of, of Acts 11, they say, okay, we're not going to stand in God's way either. If you're not going to stand in God's way, we feel confirmed by what you've said. We feel convicted by what you've said, and we're not going to stand in God's way either. And the church can move forward. And so as we let God remove our pride uh, toward him and others, he can accomplish amazing things. Mind-blowing, world-changing, supernatural things in you, in each of us, and then in our church collectively as we just say no to ourselves, no to our pride, and yes to God. So that's the first attitude here that we see in Acts 11. And then again, later this week, I'll post about a 10-12 minute video or so about the final two attitudes um, that we will see from Acts 11 that can get in God's way. So we're looking for that later on this week. But again, let's say no to ourselves and yes to God, and let's pray. God today has uh, obviously been a, a challenge. It's been a challenging message to, to study this week and to work through and even to share. And I'm sure it's been a challenging word to hear But I pray that we would take the challenge. We would say yes to this challenge. (laughs) God, less of me, more of you. Your way, not my way. Your will, not my will. Your direction, not my direction. Your path for me, not mine. And may we have enough uh, humility to also see that you're working in other people. If you're working in me, you can work in them. We might disagree on some secondary or, or tertiary issues. That's okay. We might not think the same on every single topic. That's okay. We might not see eye to eye on everything in life. That's okay. God, you work on me, and I'll try to get the speck out of my eye, and you work on them, and you try to get the speck out of their eye. And if it's a log in my eye, get the chainsaw ready. Let's work. If there's a log in their eye, then you work on them. So help us to avoid this attitude of pride that gets in your way. May we not be like Samson. May we not be like Saul. But may we be like the church here, who at the beginning, it was iffy, but at the end, they responded. As Peter said, I'm not going to stand in God's way. Who am I to stand in God's way? And the church agreed. Who are we to stand in God's way? We want what you want. We desire what you have for us. So help us to remove pride. Pull it away, strip us of ourselves, and may we just focus upon your plan for our lives and your plan for others' lives as well. So I pray that you would help us to work on ourselves even this week as we leave this place today. Give us a great week and bring us back next time ready for more of you in Jesus' name, amen.